You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio. Coming up on today's programme, Monocle's editorial director brings us the lowdown from Milan, a much-visited Monocle city. Then from Capri to Dubrovnik, we put your questions to our concierge service. We visit the specialty or speciality coffee expo in Portland, Oregon, for the countries you should definitely visit for the world's best brew. The coffee is well-balanced, sweeter, with notes more like chocolate and not with acidity that is high, that is something that other regions have. Finez CEO Topi Mana is this week's guest on our travel interrogator. We also see that people are more willing to spend to have a premium travel experience, be that, you know, premium cabins during the flight or, you know, just better hotels, better experiences. And we bring you the latest aviation news that you need to know about. That's all coming up on The Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bounds. Well, last month, we saw the biggest annual design event in the world when Milan Design Week returned with Salone del Mobile and Fuori Salone. And I spoke to Monocle's editorial director after he attended the events, and I'm sure he hosted a few of his own too there, to get his lowdown on how best to tackle Milan during such a shindig and also what to do in and around the city when it's all over. Tyler, thanks for coming on to The Concierge. It's a top booking for this programme. Uh, thanks for your time today. How has Milan been during the, uh, the sort of conclave of the cardinals of the design world, which is Saloni? It's been extraordinary. On one side, there's, there's a bounce back moment, of course, and Salone has, they put on a mini edition last year, but still there was a lot of hesitation because we know, Rob, that a lot of Asia was not really open or maybe was not in the headspace to get on a plane to go long haul. So you feel the force of Korea back. You, you feel Japan is back. You feel China is here. So it feels like a good old Salone, probably, but you know, actually dialed up a few levels as well. Nice. Yeah, I guess there's that kind of excitement of everyone being back in the room, back in the city, sharing restaurant tables and the exhibition spaces around town as well. It sounds like a step up in a good way. Milan is no more crowded than, than during an event like Salone. What is the best way around the city, Tyler, during an event of this scale? For sure, Rob, because uh, it's footwear. It's good, solid <laughs> footwear. It's not a trainer. It's an elegant loafer that you're very comfortable in. But it has to be really a good pair of solid shoes that can, of course, get you into a good event. But they also can get you across four or five kilometers because the city has just been completely gridlocked in a very good way because it's all the aspects that we like about a city when people are just spilling out onto the streets you know with their you know, a lovely glass of white from a wonderful vineyard in in Piemonte or they've got you know they're sort of two-fisting a spritz or whatever whatever it may be <laughs> uh, and and that's this this sort of just this incredible sense of, of liveliness that you know cafes are full that every showroom is packed and so there's this vibrancy the city is alive but you know, try to get around on four wheels or even two wheels is rather complicated so if you can plan your day properly walk and of course have a few places for a nice refreshing pause that's the way to go so the monocle driver's got his feet up for the time being you obviously haven't by the sound of it where are your ludwig writers taking you to in terms of drinks and dinner in milan tyler 
Well, a lot of the focus so far has been on uh, special events. I mean, this would be, of course, the challenge of coming to Milan during a period like Salone. Everything is booked out. And we're talking about, I mean, here, I'll let our listeners in on, on a little tip. I've got three or four hotels that I like to stay at, whether it's the Bulgari, whether it's the Park Hyatt. In let's say, normal times, you're in about eight or nine hundred euro region for a room. But even as a regular guest, Rob, prices are up to three, four thousand euros a night. And my secret tip is actually to make for the Swiss border. And this sounds very strange to actually get a good deal in Switzerland, but make for the Swiss border, cross into Lugano and stay at the Gabani for 200 francs a night. Sounds perfect. That is the exact kind of insider insider knowledge we want on, on this program, Tyler. And just to give our listeners a bit of your inside track on the city, which is obviously an oft-visited one for you commercially, editorially, and for pleasure as well, Tyler. What are a couple of your tips for restaurants that maybe in the lower season, in the down season, outside of Salone's operating hours, you can point people towards? I love Torre di Pisa, which is really a classic. And I think many of our listeners will be familiar with that. I also just like the Brasserie Trattoria vibe of the very wonderful Santa Lucia, which is also great. So, I, you know, Rob, you know I sort of veer towards the classics when and where possible. But I think, you know, just before we went on air, we were also talking about, you know, those escapes, you know, beyond the city as well. And that's just the amazing thing. The wonderful Carlos Azzani was one of the panelists. Um, we did an event with with Fauzug, the big Swiss appliance company. And, um, you know, Carla, of course, you know, the brains behind Dice Corso Como, one of the most respected media and design figures, not just within Italy or Europe, but the world. And she was delivering this really emotional message about also how she's seen the revival of her city, or just not even the revival, just the city actually going to a completely different level to where it was before, and, and was talking in terms of it being you know, a European capital, a European capital of not just culture, but maybe even a, just a mini capital of Europe in its own right. And part of that is the springboard nature of the place, Rob, that you know, you know that mountains are so close. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brillet, speaking to us from Milan. Next up, our concierge service is ready for your questions. And now to our own little black book, that part of the programme where we look to our very own correspondents all over the globe to answer your questions. The desk, the concierge desk, is open for your business. And I love that sound effect. It means the show has started in earnest, at least as far as some of our listeners are concerned. And first up on the line for us, bright, dare I say it, breezy and certainly early, is Alfred Perry in Los Angeles. Alfred, how's it looking over there? Are you dappled under some Californian palms? I am not. Uh, I just (laughs) flew back uh, from France, landed yesterday. We are having what's called uh, June gloom uh, a little early this year. It's gray, cool. Hopefully it will burn off in the afternoon. And then once we get past June, it tends to be very nice. So not the California sun one would expect today. Okay. It's it's hiding its light under a bushel for the moment. And which bit of LA are you in, Alfred? Uh, Where's home? Hancock Park. I'm sort of south of... Hollywood, I have a view of the Paramount Water Tower and the Hollywood sign. I love it. You paint an iconic image of your hometown, Alfred Perry. Thank you very much. And I understand that you are a bit of a travel nut and you've got a kind of transport-themed grand tour or you're embarking upon it or you're some way through it. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yes, each year I take a theme. It could be like an homage to Anthony Bourdain. It could be places that are on the rise or places that were once famous and no longer are. So this year's theme is I'm going to places that have cars or trucks named after them. Okay, nice. Well, this is a wonderful reason and a passionate reason with which to travel the world, Alfred. But what is your question? And which truck or car is um, briefing you, your question today? Yes, the Chevy Capri. I've been to Capri a few times, but not recently. And on this trip, my mood or vibe would be a um, sort of car theme related as well. A young Agnelli. Where would Johnny Agnelli go in 2023 if he were a young man? <laughs> that is a great question. It has multiple strands to it, as I'd expect, Alfred, from you. And I love this. I love this. Exactly. Where would a young Gianni Agnelli, the Torinese magnet, go on holiday to Capri in 2023? Well, we have uh, Monocle's very own Stella Rus with her answer for you, Alfred. Hi, Alfred. Thank you so much for your question. I always find myself going back to the Gulf of Naples with any excuse. I was actually on Capri just a few weeks ago the last time, and nothing really compares to the drama of the cliffs there. Unfortunately, I think it's become a little bit more touristy than it was in the Onassis days. But as long as you know where to go, it's really the most beautiful place in the world. My favorite place to spend the day is just to lounge on a beach chair at La Fontellina Beach Club, which is on the other side of the island of the Marina Grande. It's set right on the rocks. It has the blue and white striped parasols, a really good crowd, and also a really good restaurant. Another favorite is Lido del Faro, which is on Anacapri. It's a little bit more laid back, and it also stays open until late, so you can go there and have a sunset swim. I would recommend booking one of the private terraces in advance. When it's time for aperitivo, stay on Anacapri and go to Villa San Michele, which is this beautiful museum. And they also have an amazing terrace with a belvedere of the Gulf. And when it's time for dinner, I like to stay classic and go to Datonino on Capri. And this one is really an establishment by now, but I don't think there's any better restaurant on the island. And they also have a wine list that impresses even my pickiest sommelier friends. I'm a design nerd, so uh, I always have to go admire the Casa Malaparte. You can see it either from the road or by boat. And I like to squint and pretend that I'm seeing Brigitte Bardot lounging on the roof as she did in Le Mepris. Another tip in case you happen to be there in early July is uh, there's the Nomad Design Fair from the 6th till the 10th July. And it's a fair of collectible, really nice design, definitely worth a visit. And it's also in a monastery close to the Piazzetta, which is the oldest building on the island. I think if you're staying longer than a few days, a boat is mandatory and a little boat trip. So I would say speed along the Amalfi Coast and stop for lunch at Lo Zefiro Sereno, which is little more than a shack on a beach and it's accessible only by boat. And the fishermen bring their catch every morning there directly. This place really has the seafood and the atmosphere to keep even a modern day Jackie Kennedy happy. Uh, that was Monocle Stalarus there, Alfred. Um, what did you think of her recommendations? That was... That was exhaustive. I think Gianni Agnelli could have possibly even himself written down some tips from that. But how it about was fantastic. You? They sound very interesting. 
I look forward to looking into them and passing them on to my own little principessa. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, the Nomad Art Fair and Design Fair is excellent. Very nice people put that on. And Alfred, best of luck with your wonderful motoring-themed grand tour. Bon voyage, and thank you very much for that. Next up, also in the United States, is Brenda with this question. My husband and I will be traveling to Dubrovnik in early June. I was wondering if you had any suggestions for hotels, restaurants, or sites not to be missed. And who better to bring you their itinerary, the Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay. Dubrovnik offers medieval mystery and extraordinary beauty. Wander the lanes of the fortified old town and marvel at well-preserved Renaissance structures. The Sponsor Palace is now home to the Dubrovnik State Archive, and the Rector's Palace forms part of the city museum or you can take to the ramparts and walk the city walls. As a vantage point for an Adriatic sunset, it's hard to beat. The key is not what to see, but when to go. This UNESCO World Heritage Site is Croatia's biggest tourism draw, so avoid July and August at all costs. The shuffling crowds and stifling heat drain the old town of its magic. Instead, visit in spring, or better still, early autumn. In October, the Adriatic is still warm enough for swimming and you'll have much more elbow room in Dubrovnik's narrow streets. Make your old town excursions in the early morning or late afternoon to avoid the cruise ship crowds. In between times, relax in the old-school elegance of the Hotel Excelsior, the contemporary calm of the out-of-town Dubrovnik Palace, or the boutique Villa Dubrovnik with a complimentary boat ride to and from the old town. Dining options abound. You could just let the old town surprise you with an unpretentious canoba or tavern in one of the lanes. Or you could go Michelin-starred at 360 overlooking the old port, where chef Mario Suric specialises in seafood delights. Time it right in Dubrovnik and you will believe in magic. My thanks there to Guy and Stella and, of course, to Brenda and Alfred for their wonderful questions. Happy travels to you both. And if you have a question for the concierge, do write to us. Send your questions to concierge at monocle.com. Next up, it's off to Portland, Oregon for some fair play. Enophiles flock to the Mediterranean-like climates of the world's wine-growing regions, while Scotch connoisseurs brave blustery aisles on their pilgrimages for the most rarefied drams. So where would you end up if you planned your holidays around the coffee-growing parts of the world? Coffee plants grow best in the tropics at a moderate altitude, so you'd be looking at a journey to the highlands of Southeast Asia or parts of Latin America and Africa. Not a bad patch of the globe, especially if you've got a land cruiser. Coffee growers are increasingly aware of their advantageous locales in the cooler mountain forest of the tropics, and they're inviting visitors to make the trek up to their farms for a bit of agro-tourism. Monocle Radio's Gregory Scruggs visited the Speciality Coffee Expo in Portland, or Specialty, Oregon, last month to meet some of your potential hosts who can set you up for a farm stay coupled with a coffee tasting and a splash in a waterfall. I'm standing on the showroom floor of the Specialty Coffee Expo and I am surrounded by a dizzying array of coffee-making gizmos and packaging designs and cafe ware and, of course, the irresistible aroma of brewing coffee. Now, I've already made the rookie mistake of swallowing rather than spitting out the various coffees that I've tasted, so I'm a bit amped up right now. 
But my caffeine kick pales in comparison to the buzz of 12,000 delegates from 76 countries. They're making deals that will land new products in a coffee shop near you. And with 29 coffee-producing countries hosting booths, coffee farmers have traveled here from far and wide to show off their best beans. But as I learned, getting to the root of one of the world's most popular beverages is also a path worth exploring. My name is Teresita Jara, and I'm from Costa Rica. And you know, Costa Rica is a very touristic country. So we produce a lot of coffee there also, and there are many companies that uses coffee as an attraction for tourism also. Costa Rica is a small country, so you are three hours away from anywhere, from any place. If you are, for example, in San Jose, that is the capital, and you want to go to the beach, in less than three hours you are at the beach. Guanacaste is where the most beautiful beaches are in Costa Rica. So there are also some coffee farms and they also have coffee tours. So if a person is coming to Costa Rica for a holiday and they want to visit a farm, they can find some farms in Guanacaste and they can also find some very good coffee shops there to visit with specialty coffee that they can try and experience with different flavors. The coffee from Guanacaste is sweeter. It's a medium high region, so it's not coffee producing the mountains or anything, but the coffee is well balanced, uh, sweeter, with notes more like chocolate and not as citrus or with acidity that is high, that is something that other regions have, but it's sweeter and well balanced, so it's a very good coffee also. There is this very popular region, coffee producing region in Costa Rica called Los Santos, and they have been developing a lot of tourism around coffee because these are farms that have waterfalls, places to do hiking, for example. So Guanacaste is more like the beach, but if people want to go on hiking and go to waterfalls or the rivers or something like that, they can visit some of these coffee farms and they have the whole package, the whole tourism package to visit the farm, the coffee meal, and these beautiful waterfalls, for example. From the Costa Rica booth, I walked a few aisles over and hopped across the Atlantic to Kenya. Let's say you've booked your luxury safari on the Serengeti or a coastal cultural holiday to Mombasa. Why not round off your East African trip on a coffee estate? My name is Zakia Rose Mige. The company is called Great Rift Coffee. We are based in Nandi, which is in the northwestern region of Kenya. It's a very emerging coffee area. Luckily, we haven't been affected too much by climate change as of yet, so we still have very good rainfall. Um, it's still a very luscious area, extremely fertile. We are actually so fertile that we end up getting two crops a year, which is very rare for a lot of producing countries. So what we have done to try and encourage more people to get into coffee, to know the processes, to understand how it's grown, we are doing coffee tours. So our farm is 82 acres. We also manage another about 32 farms in the area. But our farm is where we do um, the tours. 
So it starts from the very beginning. You see the plant, how it's grown. You have a walk around the whole estate with our agronomist. He'll show you the coffee at different stages, the different varieties that we also have. After that, you'll have a wet processing, which will occur on the farm. And then you can also see the naturals, how that's produced, which is a different alternative process. From there, the coffee is then transported to our own milling factory that we have, which is about an hour away. You'll then see the coffee being dried and how it is processed through the milling plant. At that point, our in-house coffee liquorer will then go through the grading system of the coffee, how it is graded, how it's based on defects, etc. Then after that, you will take you to our roastery, which is in the same area. We'll show you how to roast, different roast profiles. In Kenya, we definitely prefer a lighter roast profile, which gets out a lot more of the floral, fruity flavors of the coffee. From that, you're free and welcome to try as much coffee as you like. Last but not least, I checked in with coffee powerhouse Indonesia, where an enterprising Javanese currently based in the Big Apple runs so-called origin trips to bring coffee lovers straight to the source. My name is Nora Suharman Wivo. I live in New York City as a roaster and also I'm an importer. My origin trip, we have two different types of, or two different uh, origins. One is in Sumatra and the second one is in Java Island where, where my family from. If you go to like a coffee shop in, uh, you know, and uh, like everywhere, what you can order, you probably just order like caramel latte or like, you know, espresso. But in this origin trip, we don't have that type of thing. What we can offer is like coffee from like different species because like we have the seed for like a coffee plant and then it came like from a different species. For example, the name maybe like sounds kind of like not familiar, but it is like the name is just like some people they really, really recognize the name. Like for example, like Atang or like Kartika or like Sigara Utang or like S795 and stuff like that. So those species you could try. It could be like one origin, but if it's a different type, or different species and different processing methods, you can taste so much different flavor, though they came from like one origin. The caffeinated Gregory Scruggs there in Portland, Oregon for us here on The Concierge, where next up it is time for The Travel Interrogator. Now, this week's subject of our travel interrogator has been leading Finnair's transformation after the Russian airspace closure and navigating the airline through unprecedented challenges, all whilst preparing for his company's 100th anniversary this November. Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Bertsov sat down with Finnair CEO Topi Manner in Helsinki for a quick-fire Q&A. Topi, what have you identified as the most important future trends in air travel and how is Finnair responding to these changing customer demands? Well, I, I think that the first uh, thing to say about this is that people really want to travel. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of talk uh, during the pandemic that whether travel will ever come back. And I guess what we're seeing is is that, yes, it will. During the course of the pandemic, people have probably found out what is the purpose of life. Uh, what makes uh, life worth living for and I guess the answer is people and experiences and that is why our our customers are prioritizing their spend 
differently than they used to and uh, travel is one of the last things that they want to let go of in the inflationary environment. Uh, we also see that people are more willing to spend to have a premium travel experience, uh, be that, you know, premium cabins during the flight or, you know, just better hotels, better experiences, more premium experiences. You know, before the pandemic, there was also a lot of talk about flight shame. At this point of time, I, I think that is a bit on the background. So people are not ashamed of flying, but they do expect flying to become more sustainable. And therefore, sustainability in the context of making flying more sustainable, not reducing flying, is a, um, a rising trend. Could you name some of the ways in which Finnair is is uh, promoting sustainability and giving the customers those options to fly more sustainably? I mean, if we look at the whole challenge of decarbonizing aviation, it sure is a very long-term journey. For example, for us at Finnair, our, our target is to reach carbon neutrality by 2045. Uh, sustainable aviation fuel certainly is the single biggest lever first with biofuels and then a uh, little bit later in the game synthetic electric fuels will be a big part of the answer intermodality i think is exciting so uh, cooperation between uh, aviation railroad and let's say bus services you brought up the the issue of the war and sort of the the war and the geopolitical changes they have really been a significant, it's fair to say, blow to Finnair's Asia strategy with, uh, you know, not being able to fly in the Russian airspace anymore. How have you adapted to it and um, and, and will you continue to focus as heavily as you have on Asia in the future? For sure, the war has had major consequences to us in the form of Russian airspace being being closed. And that basically forced us to change our long-lasting strategy completely. Before the pandemic, we were all about connecting Europe and Asia via the short northern route, uh, utilizing the Russian airspace. Uh, close to 50% of our revenue came from Asia. So this has required us to adapt more than we have ever adapted in the soon 100-year history of Finnair. The key component in that has been to introduce a more geographically balanced uh, network. So we have been keeping our foothold in Asia, in the megacities of Asia. And in that market, our position is... Uh, has remained strong uh, despite of these significant headwinds and despite of the longer routings around the Russian airspace. Then we have been pivoting to West. We have been increasing uh, our network in US, for example, introducing new destinations like Dallas and Seattle. Petri Burtsov with Finnair's CEO Topi Manor there. And we're keeping our wheels up, in fact, because it's our aviation roundup coming up next. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners. 
Get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. For the latest news in the world of air travel, Monocle's transport correspondent Gabriel Lee is joining us live from Stockholm's Arlanda Airport as well he might. Gabriel, lovely to have you on the programme, as always. Now, tell us why you're at Arlanda, where you're going and for what purpose, because it is a concierge happy reason, I believe. Yeah, this is a very exciting one today. I'm headed to Zimbabwe, flying to Harare today. I have to go through Doha and with a little technical stop in uh, Lusaka, Zambia. But I'm going to Zimbabwe in order to catch the last truly passenger configured 737-200. This is almost a 40-year-old plane. And there really aren't any more in the world, aside from some sort of partly cargo or private ones. This is the last one that you can buy a ticket on. And they just recently reactivated it after grounding it for a while. So I'm going to do that. That's basically my project. Nice. So what airline are you flying? What airline is operating that craft? That is Air Zimbabwe. Okay. And we had you on the line. The original top story for us was that one of my all-time favorite routes, New York to the Faroe Islands, has been opened up on Atlantic Airways. Talk us through this one a little bit and maybe tell us also what this route um, serves. Yeah, so it's kind of a a big one for Atlantic Airways, which is the, the airline of the Faroe Islands. They mostly fly to Copenhagen, a few other European stops, but they've been talking about wanting to open a New York service for some time. Now they're finally doing it. It's going to depart from an airport in upstate New York. It's uh, Stewart Airport in uh, upstate New York. They're going to fly it direct to uh, Vagar, the, the airport in the Faroe Islands that serves Torshavn. They're going to do it seasonally for now and once a week. So it's a, it's a small operation, but it's a, a pretty cool one to get onto. And I'm actually going to be on that one too when they, when they fly it from New York for the first time. Nice. Our next story um, is, this is a funny one, Air New Zealand have started weighing passengers. What is this? Is this a, a weightist thing? Is this all about tight manifests? What is this one, Gabriel? Right. When I first read it, I thought it was about, you know, let's finally sort of start charging people by the pound that they weigh <laughs> in addition to their baggage. Uh, it's actually part of a survey they're running to figure out average weights of passengers. This is the calculation that goes into figuring out how much your aircraft weighs, that, that goes into working out takeoff performance, how much fuel they need, that kind of thing. So they, they need to update these average weights once in a while. So they're taking hopefully 10,000 people who are checking in for flights anyway, asking them very kindly to step on the scale, probably reminding them that they won't be charged based on, on the result, just to get this number updated, to get it more accurate for the times we live in. Well, I hope Air New Zealand have got their most uh, wonderfully charming flight attendants with the best bedside manners on on that particular job. Um, And just finally, while we have you on the line, this is a a topical one. People might have seen this in their news feeds and in their newspapers as well, that Asiana are stopping bookings for emergency aisle seats. Talk us again through this one and, and why they're having to do that. Right. So this was an incident many would have seen because it created some kind of dramatic footage that we, we got all over social media and elsewhere of, of uh, passengers after an exit door was opened on the descent on a flight. And, and it, of course, was probably very scary and uncomfortable for the people, especially those close to the emergency exit row. We tend to think about emergency exit rows that they can't really be open in flight because of the pressure differential. And that is true. But this was at a lower altitude where it was it became possible. And it's actually sort of surprising we haven't really seen this before. So I guess out of an abundance of caution and maybe a bit of a PR move, they're saying we won't accept bookings in the exit row, at least on some flights. Um, you know, they're just trying to do damage control, I guess, because they've been in the press a few times over the last decade for sort of not not the best situations, you know, incidents like that. So they're probably very wary of how they're perceived when stuff like this gets out. Yeah. And it's uh, you always think of kind of copycat stuff with this, right? That, that people are kind of like, oh, well, I can do that. I can get I can, <laughs> I can avoid the queues and hop off the plane with my little suitcase that much quicker. But this is supremely few and far between and rare, right? 
Very rare. And of course, you can't do it mid-flight, which is a, which is a good thing because then it would be a much more dramatic experience. <laughs> yeah, that was a very understated and dry dramatic, Gabriel. Uh, we appreciated that. We also appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a great time on that last 737-200 route. Enjoy yourself on that. And also that Faroe Islands route when that opens up on Atlantic Airways. Monocle's transport correspondent there, Gabriel Lee. And that is it for today's programme. Thanks to our concierge team today, which comprised Tyler Brule, Stella Roos, Guy Delorney, Petri Bertsoff and Gabriel Lee. Our producer was Tom Webb and the programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Mariana Bevan. If you have a question for the concierge, do drop us an email on concierge at monocle.com. Join us next week, of course, when we'll be on the refurbished Orient Express, no less. I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in and happy travels. 